God, our Father, we thank you now again for your word. We thank you for this amazing little book of Ephesians. And we pray that you'll help us uh, as we consider it together now. In your name. Amen. Now, uh, I hope you'll forgive me for saying, and um, don't be offended by this. Uh, I uh, once heard a preacher preaching on this passage. And uh, coming to verse 4, he, he said, uh, but God being rich in mercy, he said, that is one of the great buts in the Bible. And um, I thought, yes, that's very interesting. And he went on to say, there are lots of great buts in the Bible. And, um, well, if you know my family, they could hardly keep a straight face thinking of all these, <laughs> all these great buts that there are <laughs> in, the, in the Bible. So uh, do forgive me if I struggle a bit when I come to, uh, to a verse like that. You know, whenever I take a funeral uh, or a baptism, the person that's died or the person, the parents of the child are always believers. Do you find that? You've probably never seen them before. You'll probably never see the baptism family, or you may very well not see the baptism family again. You'll never see this, this uh, family, this few who've lost a loved one, but they're believers. Oh, he didn't go to church. No, he didn't go to church, but he was a believer. He thought the right things. He might even have had a prayer book on his shelf that he thought was so great. It's very interesting, isn't it? People say frequently, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And it's usually phrased like that, even to the minister. They've stopped asking ministers, do I have to go to church to be a Christian? Uh, and they become much bolder. I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Do I, minister? Uh, I don't know what you say to that. Because, um, of course, the, the strict answer is, well, no. You don't have to if you're prevented from it. But I don't really think that is a sufficient answer. I'm beginning to answer, well, actually, yes, you do. Because... It's part of who we are. Is it even right to ask the question, why do we go to church? Do we even go to church? We don't choose to be part of a church any more than we choose to be part of a family. We don't choose our family members. And when we fall out with them, we go and choose another family to be part of. That's not the way it works, is it? It's not... Uh, that I, I, I go along to this group of people. I belong to it, don't I? Like a family, like a body. So can I belong to more than one? What if you go along, go along to church and you think, well, I'm not getting anything out of this? Is that what it's for? Or should you give up and find another church where you are getting something out of it by your attendance? What is church anyway? Isn't being a Christian about my own personal relationship with God? Isn't it about, for evangelicals, my personal conversion, my uh, daily Bible reading, my praying? Oh, and go to church as well. Make sure it's a good evangelical church where you're going to get good teaching. As though we only go along to church services to learn from a good and able preacher. 
Is that what it's about? Is it just like some kind of common interest group? We might get it on the internet. And then over the last couple of years, we have had this whole new flourishing, as uh, Ros was talking about that last night, of virtual church. I mean, Ros was doing it long before any of us. But uh, we've all, I guess most of us in here, have been running some kind of virtual church. Where, uh, you know, people dip in and dip out. Members of my congregation have said, oh yes, I've been along to um, All Souls, Langham Place. Uh, but they've been to all these churches all over the country. Is that, is that, is that really church? Can we have a virtual church? Now, uh, Roz and I could probably have a debate on what virtual church is and whether we can have one or not, whether it's real church. I'm not convinced that it is. And, um, I am keen to, to cut down on my live streaming as much as possible. Part of me wants to say, keep it going because there's more people listening in. But the, the main part of me as a minister, as a, um, a Bible teacher is saying, well, no, get rid of it. We don't want to encourage people to be online. We want them, we want to encourage people to come and join together with the family of which they are part. Not the, the group where they go, the family of which they are part. The idea that we pick and choose and that church is a consumer um, uh, uh, thing where we just take the bits we want from all those various churches, that's not a biblical view of church at all. And then you're going to say to me, or some of you might say to me, ah, but, uh, but Mark, you're talking about the visible church. And uh, the New Testament, most of the time, is talking about the invisible church, which is true believers. So it doesn't matter which group I belong to or where I go. I'm a member of the invisible church. So I share fellowship with all those members of this invisible church. Is that right? Is that fair enough? Well, I mean, there's lots in the New Testament to help us with this. But I'm obviously only going to focus on what Paul says in Ephesians. Because he says quite a lot about what the church is and what the church is for. The word um, ecclesia occurs nine times in Ephesians in, uh, in six chapters. So he has quite a lot to say about the ecclesia, the church. First, the church belongs to Christ. It doesn't belong to you or me. Now, uh, I have the freehold where I am because I've been there for ages uh, and I'm privileged to have the freehold. That means that I own the church building, which is fantastic. It doesn't mean anything at all, but um, I own it. So that, that church is mine, but well, okay. Only the building, isn't it? The church that meets there belongs to Christ. Chapter 1, verse 22. Uh, and he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is the head of the church. That means he is uh, the ruler. He's the boss. And uh, that becomes very significant in chapter 5, which we'll get onto. Christ is... God's gift to the church. We, we talked about that a little bit last time. He's God's gift to the church. 
that's quite a thing to kind of think about, meditate, and, th- and just think on what that means. That um, we're, we come into the church by coming into Christ, but Christ is God's gift to us as the church as well at the same time. The church experiences the fullness of Christ. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I struggled a little bit to know what that meant, um, and I'm not sure I fully understood it now. But I do know this. Fullness speaks in the Bible of authority and of ownership. When the temple was dedicated, it was filled with the Shekinah glory of God. It was filled. There was fullness of the glory of God in the temple. When Isaiah had a vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6, what does he say? His robe filled the temple. The power of God, the glory of God filled the place. And now we read that Christ fills all things. I understand that to mean he has authority, he has power, and he has ownership of the church. So the church is not about the individual believer. It's about the group of believers who are the body of Christ. It belongs to Christ. The second thing that Paul tells us about the church is that the church brings glory to God. Now, does the Church of England bring glory to God? Well, I don't know. I hope it does, and I'm sure in many ways it does. But look at what uh, the Apostle Paul writes in chapter 3 and verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, a manifold wisdom of God, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart of what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Christ, uh, uh, sorry, Christ is to be glorified in the church. And um, that means when the heavenly beings, this is the cosmic picture that Paul has here in chapter 3, when the heavenly beings look down from the heavenly places and they see the church as against the rest of the world, they say, wow, look at the glory of God. It's incredible, isn't it? Absolutely amazing that God should use us sinful people to display his glory, to demonstrate his wisdom. Chapter 3 and verse uh, 21, we have this wonderful doxology at the end of this uh, stupendous prayer that Paul prays. Uh, The doxology in verse 21, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Church is to bring glory to God forever and ever. So uh, what happens when the church is divided? 
What happens when the church is dysfunctional? What happens when the church is arguing among itself? How does that bring glory to God? I think we need to do all we can uh, within, uh, w- within where we've been put in the Church of England to make sure that those things are kept to a minimum. And uh, the problem, one problem is that amongst evangelicals, if I can be brutally honest, we have fallen out over the years, over the most minute details that really ought to be put to one side because we should be united. As evangelicals, we'd have been over the years a far greater force for good if we'd been a little bit more tolerant of each other and and been prepared to work together. I think I'm quite prepared in my ministry to work together with anybody who is orthodox. I don't care whether they call themselves evangelical or not. Uh, As long as they're orthodox in their belief, I'm quite happy to work with them because I'm even happy to call them uh, brothers and sisters. That may come as a shock to some who say, well, well, have they had a conversion experience or, you know, whatever else? Well, that's between them and God, isn't it? That's why I serve or have served so far on General Synod. And (laughs) if I took my phone out, I'd know whether I'm still on. And that's why uh, when I've uh, worked in, in, in the two dioceses that I've worked in over my ministry, I've worked really hard to serve on uh, diocesan synod and councils, however hard it's been. And at times it has been really hard. We need to work together and display God's glory. Now, the third thing that Paul tells us about the church is really quite, quite a surprising thing. He tells us this. Uh, the church... God's church brings fuller meaning to marriage. That's quite a shock, isn't it? It's a bit of a a jolt, a bit of a change of direction. But that's where Paul goes in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5. We'll read from verse 22. You all know these verses. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That's a very difficult passage, isn't it, in 21st century Britain, England. I don't know how many of you uh, read that with uh, couples that come to you to get married as part of the wedding preparation. Uh, It's there in most wedding preparation as an option, but I'm a bit shy of it, I have to say, and be honest with you. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Paul does one of his seamless segues here that he does from time to time where he shifts you don't notice it 
until you look back, he shifts from the metaphor to what the metaphor actually points to. Where does he stop talking about marriage and wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving their wives? Well, it's not easy to see, is it? He segues through from one to the other. And you know, by the time uh, you get to the end of his argument, it's clear he's talking about the church. He sees the two things as that closely linked. The relationship between men and women in marriage as an example, a witness of the relationship between Christ and his church. And um, it's for that reason as well, as I said the other day, that I can't be anything for me, anything other than a complementarian in my theology. Because the image there is of a, a headship relationship in marriage, a loving relationship in marriage, which points to the headship of Christ. We've read that Christ is the head of the church in, in chapter uh, 2. Um, and now we have the husband is the head of the wife, and we have uh, the love and the submission, and it all works together. And you can see Paul links them, links them so closely together that one almost becomes the other. Now let me ask you, if those of you who are married, what would people make of Christ and the church from your marriage, your relationship? Now, yes, we're fallen, sinful human beings. We often get it wrong. But we need to remember that our relationship with our spouse reflects to the world and the heavenly beings the relationship between Christ and his church. So Paul says of the church, it belongs to Christ, it brings glory to God, it brings fuller meaning to marriage. And just... Uh, finally, as we kind of round off, I want to uh, just look at the second letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament. Are you all ahead of me or not? Revelation. Revelation 2. This is the same church, remember, that, um, that Paul spent more time with than any other. A church that he loved dearly and deeply, that he wanted to encourage, that he wrote this fantastically encouraging letter to. The church that was standing against uh, all this pagan thought and the temple of Diana and all that stuff. A church that recognised its setting in cosmic, uh, in, in a cosmic way with the, the heavenly beings looking on. This is the same church to whom Christ is writing not very much later. Chapter 2 of Revelation and verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tasted those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now that so far sounds really great commendation. If, if Jesus was saying that about my church, 
I will be absolutely delighted. They're enduring patiently. They can't bear evil. They're standing against uh, all kinds of evil things that are going on. And more to the point, how I need to read this, they are not growing weary. What an amazing church that is. But read on. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. You've abandoned your first love. You know, for some of us, um, it's easy to want to be uh, right above everything else. To want to find a church that is right, that crosses every T and dots every I and gets everything right. That could be the church in Ephesus here in Revelation 2. But there's something much more important than getting everything right. And it's this. Don't abandon your first love. That means love for each other. If you want to join a church, I think high on the list, very high on the list, is do these people love each other? And how is that manifested? And how can I be part of that? Love for each other, bearing with one another, putting up with one another's difficulties, helping one another, receiving criticism as well as giving it when it's given and taken in love. I'm meant to build the church up. Don't abandon that love. And of course, it means love for God. In some ways, it's, it's easier to, um, to be in love with, with being right, as I said before, than it is to be in love with God. It's uh, easy to, to miss the point that the church is the bride of Christ. As this church in Ephesus had gone on, between Paul's uh, letter to the Ephesians and um, uh, Jesus' letter to the Ephesians, there hadn't been that much time, but they drifted away in their love. Now, what do you know about brides? If you've ever had one in your family, Claire's had one quite recently. If you've got brides in your family or brides that you know that you are taking a, a, a marriage for. If you say to the bride, well, do you, do you love this, this man you're going to love? What would you advise if the bride said, yes, I love him, but not as much as I used to? <laughs> You'd say, well, I'm not sure you really ought to be getting married. I think you should be thinking twice. That's what you'd say, isn't it? You expect the bride to say, I, I'm going to try and do a bride. You think, oh, I love him so much. I'm head over heels. Every morning I wake up, he's my first thought. And I can't think of anybody else. And every morning I wake up and I love him more than I did the morning before. And it just goes on. And just when I think I can't love him anymore, I find I do. That's what brides are like, isn't it? And if they're not, you say, don't, don't marry him. 
That's what they ought to be like. We are the bride of Christ. Is that what we're like in the church? Do we love God more and more and more and love each other more and more and more and love his church, his body more and more and more day by day by day as we move towards being with him in glory for eternity? We ought to. If we don't, and that may well be true for a large number of us, then we need to do something about it. We can't just say, oh yes, well that was an interesting point, but I'm going to put that to one side and carry on the way I was going. Because the Bible says we need to do something about it. Do you know, um, the seven churches, I'm sure you know this, the seven churches in Asia at the beginning of Revelation, within, within a generation or two, they were gone. All of them, everyone, gone. And, um, it's got, that, that, that is a salutary lesson. You know, some of these churches were strong. Going for it, churches, didn't last. I mean, we don't always know why. There can have been lots of different reasons. But it's quite possible that in Ephesus, they just lost the love that they first had and didn't ever get it back. It's perilous. What does Jesus say to the church in Ephesus they should do? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen... Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Too often I meet with evangelicals particularly and um, you know, I'm talking particularly to evangelicals here because most of us are evangelical. And uh, conferences are defined by by getting it right i've even you know heard people say you know you get a little gobbit you've got to do your your exegesis on and uh the question will will be well did you get it right did you get it right now that's not an unimportant question but it's not the most important question the most important question is do you love jesus and do you love each other because if not, that's what's going to put us in more danger than, than all the error that we're trying to counter. Let's bow our heads to pray. God, our Father, we do thank you for your word and uh, its truth and its power to us. We pray, Lord, that you'll give us understanding uh, and that you, w- you will challenge us through your word by your Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that increasingly, more and more, we would be known as those who have a deep and genuine love for one another and for you. In your name we pray.